0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: Bradfoe Show. That's my open? That's what they used to call me, Swivel Hits Bradford. That's my open. I'm waiting for you to justify your stupid opinion. Bradfoe Show. That's delicious. All right, we promised to keep the ball rolling, and that's exactly what we're doing on The Brad Bradfoe Show, episode 106. This one's a good one. Brian Bannister, assistant pitching coach for the Boston Red Sox, been on the podcast before. The best insight that you are going to find in terms of how to pitch the baseball. And the reason that I called upon Brian Bannister today, I think because everyone's talking about these home runs. Home runs this, home runs that. Over 50 home runs in one day, the other day. That day, the Red Sox, I think, hit six of them. So this is a big story in baseball. But nobody is talking about what the pitchers are doing to adjust, to change, to prevent the home runs. This is the story. Everyone's talking about launch angle, swing path, everything trying to hit home runs, so forth and so on. But what are the pitchers doing? And that's where Brian Bandister comes into the equation. He, Brian's great in terms of telling us where pitching is going, how it's changed. It is a fascinating, fascinating discussion, just part of what was a wild day for me that started with me going to Target, buying a slinky. It cost $3, and why did I do that? Because I was at Target Field home of the twins I look into the bleachers and I said these are the steepest bleachers that I've ever seen they have to be the steepest bleachers in all of baseball so what do you do when you see steep bleachers you have to test them it's scientific exploration yes scientific exploration that's what I did I went to target I actually googled where can you buy a slinky in Minneapolis and I found it is in target Found the found the uh, slinky section, three bucks. Got the slinky. Did the podcast with Brian. Went up to the uh, went up to the um, the uh, the heights, the highest point of Target Field, where the where I'm talking about in terms of the bleachers, and tried to implement a slinky to go down these stairs. You're going to have to go to my Twitter account to find out exactly what happened. Uh, but, you know, I feel like it was a worthwhile activity. It was a little strange sitting atop those bleachers trying to get a Twinkie, uh, Twinkie, a Slinky to go down the stairs while from a distance you can see almost the entire Red Sox, like basically the entire Red Sox bullpen were working out in the outfield looking up and looking and saying, you know, what? what is he doing? What's going on? What an idiot. Well, So be it. I mean, you've got to mix things up every once in a while. So what a day it was. And on top of that, the Red Sox lost in the 17-inning game. So I don't know when you're going to be listening to this, but this was the day. The Red Sox lost in 17 innings. I did a scientific experiment with a slinky at a ballpark on top of the the steepest stands that you're ever going to find in Major League Baseball. And most importantly, we did a podcast with Brian Manister to find out every. Thing that you wouldn't you would ever want to know and everything you didn't know and everything that's going to make you smarter after listening i guarantee you are going to be the smartest baseball consumer on your block after listening to this this is a good one Ta- how are pitchers approaching hitters who are just trying to hit home runs pitchers are they winning hitters are they winning uh, who knows we'll find out episode 106 coming at you now second time in as many years brian bannister is joining us last time brian uh, it was all about young pitchers and uh and finding a way to be better remember that who could forget that podcast <laughs> i got a lot of buzz though I, you know, people like what you said about uh, that was a bit when i was on the tanner Hawk train which I guess was a good train to get on. He's pretty good, right? He's having a good year. Yeah. So there you go. Um, so speaking of trains to get on, everyone wants to get on the the home run train when it comes to Major League Baseball. Just the other day, everyone surfaced. It was I think the Red Sox. The day the Red Sox hit six home runs, Major League Baseball hit over fifty or fifty. It's becoming crazy. It's becoming outrageous. We saw a little bit last year how this was going, a lot of strikeouts, a lot of home runs. That's how it is. So I wanted to take a little bit of a unique angle, Brian, and 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 go down the road of how pitchers are adjusting to this. And that that may be a work in progress, but there's this is absolutely part of the equation, I think, that not a lot of people are talking about. Everyone's talking about why hitters are hitting home runs. Well, pitchers have had their salvo, too, in terms of attacking the way that they're going at it, right?
0: It's definitely way more of a 3 true outcomes game at the moment, uh, and it's been progressing that way for many years. Uh, from a hitter's perspective, it, I always do analogies. It's, in my role, I find analogies are way easier than, than talking about the actual subject matter. Right now, if you're a hitter, it's like being on the freeway. And there's a traffic jam ahead of you. And then all of a sudden, to the left, you see this carpool lane with nobody in it. And it's like, oh, I'll just take the carpool lane with no cars in it. Because they look out. They know that people upstairs are shifting on. They know all their data. They know where they hit the ball. And it, it's just so much a, more of a hassle as a hitter to try to deal with all that. And it's just, I'll just take the carpool lane and hit it over the fence. <laughs> and and because it's working, they've just gone that route. Uh, and, and that's kind of where I feel like the game's
1: at right now. So from a pitcher's perspective, and I remember talking to Rick Porcello about this last year, and he's a great guy to talk to about it because, as we saw on Monday night, he he really is, is a master of adjusting to whatever is in front of him and what he has to do, where he went from a two-seamer to a four-seamer back to a two-seamer, and it depends on what he has to do. And I think that pitchers... Would be wise to do that, and I know that pitchers are doing that. And I think that you can speak to this, the organization, how you guys are teaching pitchers to con- sort of confront this, this, uh, this express lane mentality of these hitters.
0: Rick's one of my favorite guys to watch, and the reason is is because I feel like because of his pitchability, he represents the constant struggle of the good athlete in the game dealing with all the analytics that invaded the game. Rick can shape pitches. He can hit his spots. He can do a lot of things with the baseball, uh, but he's not like a high 90s guy. And he can four seam it. He can sink it. He's, He's extremely talented. He's won a Cy Young Award. But he also is very real, and you see him dealing with how the league's changing year over year. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why he's really enjoyable for me to watch because he's not Chris, who's out there dialing it up to the high 90s. Mm-hmm. Unique left-handed slot wipeout slider. Rick represents what pitchers have been forever in the history of this game, which is command shaping pitches. You know, not overwhelming velocity. You know, there's there's a command component and there's a pitch shape component to what he does. Uh, And so just being in the trenches with him the last couple of years and just dealing with how hitters are changing their swings, you know, whether the ball is flying or not flying, all the analytical advances and and mentalities that the game has gone through. It's really fun to watch Rick because he's constantly battling. He's the consummate professional. He's extremely talented, but he does represent that pitcher that has to adjust the league every year. But that's what I find enjoyable about his outings.
1: Well, the thing is is that a lot of times they say, um, oh, Keiko went through this, right? No one's signing Keiko because he's a sinker baller. And that, that's not the way the game is going. They're prioritizing the four-seam fastball. And if you just did that in a vacuum with Rick, it's like, oh, well, look, this is the guy who came up as a two-seamer. Where, to your point, it's not that simple. It's not that cut and dry. And I think that, that, is a, that is, he is a great lesson to what pitchers have to go through And if they aren't going through it, they're not doing it the right way.
0: You know, with, with regards to the sinker, I, th- I think what's happened is, and, and this is more of a biomechanical thing, the sinker is still there, but it's just the changeup instead now. Because when you, when you get into the biomechanics of it, you can pronate more on a changeup with the ball in the outer half of your hand than you can on a two-seamer. And when you throw that version of a changeup as hard as you possibly can. And a lot of these guys now can throw it 88 to 92 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. You have basically replaced the sinker with the same pitch, but with even more depth. Mm -hmm. So it's not that the sinker is not wanted. It's just, we found a way to throw it better at the same velocity with more depth. And so I think that's what the league is. And you look around the league and a lot of guys throw these really hard changeups, and that's just the new sinker because you, the human hand can simply pronate further with a change-up grip, and then if you throw that as hard as possible, you get that same velo range that Brandon Webb or you know any, any of these really good sinker ballers always pitched in mm-hmm. except they can pronate it further and get a little more depth. So it, it, it's mm-hmm.
1: still a sinker mm-hmm. in effect, but with even more sink to it. Talk a little bit about, if you can, about some of the other pitches that um, that have evolved and devolved, depending on the, the the hitter's approach, like we've talked about.
0: Probably the most interesting genre is breaking balls. Um, most people know at this point that breaking balls outperform. Uh, yeah, I've been a component of that, proponent of that for years. But what's interesting is there's literally not enough classifications for breaking balls anymore. Uh, on the development side, there's about eight different breaking balls that you can teach a guy, and they all have different breaks. And so internally, we have to call them different things. <laughs> you know, Classically, they're called curveballs or sliders, but that's not specific enough for what we have to do and, and when we have to develop a pitch with an individual pitcher Uh, but that's kind of the fun of it there's just this whole variety of breaking balls within that category and they all have different purposes they all fit in different places within a pitcher's mix and we have to be able to teach them specifically to the pitchers Um, so there's no such thing as just a slider anymore because you could have four different pitchers with four different slider breaks and it's because their arms work differently they have different spin rates their biomechanics are different they have different mobility flexibility so that's kind of fun on our side is there, there's almost this whole wide variety of box of chocolates of breaking balls mm-hmm. and we have to deal with them uh, uniquely from each other
1: and why and we were talking uh before about this where a couple of years ago you had the big rich hill, 12 to 6 curveball, that was all the rage. And, and now, and correct me if I'm wrong, because the hitter's path, bat path, and the launch angle approach, that that has become more challenging to implement. Now, obviously, you're going to have outliers. Like you have two guys on your pitching staff right now, two of the, the, two of the top three guys in terms of percentage of curveballs, we'll call it curveballs, um, are Brandon Workman and and Matt Barnes because I think they have an elite brand of curveball. But overall, the twelve to six curveball is sort of, it, it, tell me if I'm wrong, but is playing into sort of this swing path that these hitters are taking.
0: Yeah, that that has some truth. Uh, when that pitch is thrown on its own, one of the things I think you've really seen, and it's it's nothing new if, if you just look back on it. You look at somebody like Clayton Kershaw, he's had two breaking balls his whole career. He doesn't throw a changeup. And so he's throwing that big 12-6 curveball, but he also has that hard cutter slider. And when you look at somebody like Brandon Workman, he's essentially a mirror image of that from the right side. He's throwing that over-the-top fastball, the big 12-6 curveball, and then the the cutter slider. And so, you know, what... In trying to break out from stereotypes that a pitcher has to have a fastball and a breaking ball and a really? changeup, there's actually a lot of guys that excel and are way better with two versions of a breaking ball versus having a breaking ball and a changeup. Mm-hmm. And some guys are the opposite. Some guys have different variations of, of off-speed pitches. And trying to find out as quickly as possible how a pitcher's arm work how his hand comes through the ball and what pitches he's able to throw allows us to make quicker decisions on, okay, maybe this guy is a two breaking ball guy and maybe this other guy doesn't need a breaking ball. Uh, You know, there's, there's just so many different flavors of guys but we try not to hold ourselves back with, with right. stereotypes.
1: Right. That's that's where you say, Hey, hey, we Brandon Workman and Matt Barnes don't throw that curveball because hitters are hitting curveballs, which we, they are hitting curveballs, the slower curveballs more yes. than they have in the past, correct?
0: Yeah, and that's been that that's been part of the metamorphosis is we still teach curveballs, but we've had to come up with different grips, different shapes. Um, different training techniques to be able to show guys versions of curveballs that are going to be more effective in this environment.
1: You know who said that the other day it was Bobby Pointer, and and he, I was just talking to him. Hey, what have you been doing differently? He said exactly that. He said I'm throwing, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm throwing my curveball harder. You know,
0: the the pitches that you're taught in Little League and high school, for the most part, won't work here. Hmm. And as coaches, we have to evolve leveraging the, the data and telling us this, this is what is working and then figuring out ways to teach it. There, there's pitches that we've stumbled upon that I didn't even know existed a couple of years ago. And biomechanically, how to teach it, what grip it takes, and which guys are candidates to throw that pitch.
1: Can you give an example?
0: Yeah, like, usually, usually here, I'll, I'll say it in a general way. Usually when a guy throws a pitch and nobody knows whether to call it a curveball or a slider or a cutter, and there's all these like weird in between pitches. They're like these um, things that have evolved out of the analytics and that they work, but nobody would have taught them 10 years ago because we didn't know they were going to work and we didn't know that they would be effective. And, and so it's this whole subgenre where they're really analytically based pitches and they don't have common terms. But we teach them anyways because when you look at the WOBA against them, for example, they just don't get hit hard or they generate a lot of swing and miss. Mm -hmm. And it's just, as a coach, how you have to keep evolving. I I don't know what to call this pitch, but I'm teaching it because (laughs) this guy's arm action is a candidate for it. And this other guy in the big leagues throws it. And it works, and so we're going to call it The Thing.
1: <laughs> it's like wiffle ball. That's what you do. Yeah, well, it, it's like my one-finger crap kicker, you know?
0: <laughs> it's in, like, in wiffle ball, you invent pitches. Yes, And we've almost gotten to that point in Major League Baseball where you have all of the most talented guys in the world throwing all these pitches, and sometimes they almost accidentally throw a pitch, and it almost becomes this data artifact where it's a really good pitch, even though they didn't intend to throw it and all of a sudden you run the numbers and wow that's a good pitch and it's getting good results every time yeah. he throws yeah. the other pitch he's trying to throw incorrectly why don't we just teach him that pitch instead <laughs> because it's outperforming the one he's actually trying to throw
1: well also this goes back, this bringing back to again the hitters approach where pitchers have had to rely on this kind of creativity if, if guys are gonna take these massive swings and put two, three runs output in one swing after you can pitch a great game, but you give up that one that you're going to have to make sure that you're creative, that you're, you're ahead of the curve. And, um, and so they are, right? I mean, this is, you're seeing that more, even though home runs are up, I would imagine the creativity of pitchers is probably also up this year, right? Yeah. I mean, you look at,
0: take away our first road trip. We, we obviously underperformed. We ramped up late out of spring you know, if you go by Fangraph's F4, we've been leading the major leagues in pitching from right about our home opener. Mm-hmm. It's taken a lot of creativity, and I give our guys a lot of credit because all of them had made, made adjustments. Because one thing we're finding on the coaching side, we, we can't always predict what other teams are working on or, or how they're assembling their team or the analytical strategies they're coming up with every offseason and you come back and come out of the shoot in late March, early April, and something's changed. You know, there's a glitch in the matrix and you're trying to react on the coaching side as fast as possible and come up with solutions for what hitters are trying to do to you on the pitching side. And that requires very quick, very data-driven adjustments by a lot of guys, whether it's their pitch mix, whether it's the shape of the pitch, whether it's trying to throw a pitch harder, um, whether it's throwing a pitch to a different part of the zone than they did in the past, you're just trying to be as reactive and flexible as possible. And it takes an open-minded group of pitchers and coaches to get your guys synced up, get them confident, get their reps on the mound uh, out of the way, so that they can go out and, and execute in a game.
1: Was there a thing when, like you said, as this year is going along, you're like, oh man, you know, with this is that there was eye-opening for you in terms of maybe how hitters were approaching it differently even than last year or how you thought it was going to be coming out of spring training?
0: You know, the biggest things you see is hitters are trying to defend against the strikeout and probably the number one thing. And it's, it's nothing proprietary is they're trying to swing less outside of the zone and swing more at pitches in the zone, regardless of whether, regardless of what the count is. And, on top of that, they're also trying to leverage the data to understand the uniqueness of a pitcher's fastball. Uh, you see you see guys talking about it, uh, you know, how it fools their eyes. Uh, you see them try to game plan against a certain pitcher, you know, what parts of the zone is he – because the velocities are so high right now, what parts of the zone is he most likely to land his pitches in? Um, you know, and, and then there's other obvious things where – if you're looking at analytics, pitchers generally are trying to throw it to a hitter's weak spot. So on the flip side, the hitters kind of know if I'm not generating any production in this part of the zone, there's a good chance they're going to throw it there. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, it's this constant cat and mouse game and that's what makes it so fun. And you see these analytical cycles, which used to be multi-year cycles where teams would take a couple years to make adjustments. It's gotten to the point. It almost happens on a multi-month basis mm-hmm. where you see teams reacting and changing their trends or, or making huge adjustments and that's what's
1: fun about it. Well, the big, you know, we, I think I talked to you about this in Oakland, how even a year ago, the, the amount of analytics, the, the analytics departments of teams and the resources for teams for a lot of the stuff that we're talking about has, it, it, was, it was a lot of teams, now it has to be every team. Like every, it's not even an option anymore. So that must have changed the dynamic. The fact that, you know, that every single one of these teams has things that maybe, you know, a handful of teams had two years ago. The, the amount
0: of analytical infrastructure on every team now is, is just massive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from their own custom iPad apps to. Uh, just the the volume of information that they can produce visually, um, you know, it, it trends, you know, tendencies, um, you know, and I, I talk to guys in all kinds of other organizations, you know, from the scouts to the player development guys to the coaches, and just the amount of information is incredible. Uh, and it's getting to the point you have to be able to whittle it down on the yeah. coaching side. and find the signal from the noise but for both
1: hitters and pitchers i mean that's what's insane about it yeah it,
0: it's it, it's almost like the sky's the limit at the moment um uh, the amount of information that Statcast cast is tracking and now going to hawkeye next year uh you know th- there's just billions of data points <laughs> it's trying to figure out okay what is the most important to our team and the most important to communicate to our players without making it too complicated.
1: So when you look at, when you look at, I, I don't want to just say who's winning and who's losing, the pitchers or the hitters, because, you know, some days <laughs> some days the hitters win, some days the pitchers win. But, you know, that. what do you see? Are, are you seeing that pitchers, because this is your thing, that pitchers are increasingly being able to take advantage of the approach that we talked about before? that maybe even more so than than last year or the year before. I feel like this
0: is the first year where pitchers have carte blanche to take on any identity they want to take on, and nobody's going to question it. They're not going to question how many fastballs you're throwing. They're not going to question how many secondary pitches you're throwing. They're not going to question, you know, if you get – to a full count and you throw a ball every time and walk the guy nobody questions it there's just all these outside the box strategies and you know it's just become this massive game within the game where pitchers have tried to find their own identity where they thrive the most Brandon workman right now looks nothing like he did 3 years ago mm-hmm. and that's a testament to him and you see that with guys all over the league they've invented new pitches they've changed their mixes and to me, it's as entertaining as the game's ever been, although I would prefer more contact. <laughs> I, I, well, just because, I, you know, I take everything from golf. In my coaching, everything is a golf analogy. And one of the things I love about golf is they were a decade ahead of us on the track man side. I love how watching the U.S. Open, they, they always force there to be an accuracy component, and they they penalize you for errors, and I love that about golf and and the biggest tournaments. And I would, as as we've pushed the limits in the game here in every way possible, this game looks nothing like the game a hundred years ago. Hmm. And one of the beautiful things about this game is the history and how it's all connected. But I feel like the game now that we have the data and the analytics. We almost need to compete against ourselves in a way to, to keep the game in balance the same way they do in the U S open. I, I love how they go. We want the winner to be the one guy who's under par and everybody else, you know, <laughs> it, it got annihilated by the course. Yeah. I actually like that. It, it makes for a very tense, very dramatic tournament and in golf, they have things like they they cap, you know, how far the ball flies. You can get those cheater balls and do your own long distance tournaments where they fly way too far. But then if you're going to play a regulation ball, it doesn't fly as far. You're going to play a pro V1 or something. And, you know, they make the greens faster. There's all these accuracy slash command qualities to golf. Um, And it's fun because it's all the best players in the world against the course. And I feel like in baseball, we don't quite at the moment have that balance of risk-reward. Right now, it's just flat-out pure athleticism. It's, mm-hmm. it's how hard can we throw, how nasty can we make breaking balls, how fast can we swing, how far can we launch a baseball. What's fun to me is if, if there's almost that U.S. Open-like quality to it all, mm-hmm. where you know, if you've made the strike zone maybe a little more horizontal where it matches the shape of the bat, uh, if the ball was a li- the COR of the ball, how far it flies, was a little less, all of a sudden you, you bring this risk-reward profile where trying to hit a home run – almost becomes the same as trying to go for the green and two on a par five in golf. That's <laughs> a good one, Where, yes. where there's, a, there's a lake in front of the green, and if you're going to go for it, yeah. you, you better do it. And same thing, if you're going to try to hit a home run, except for the biggest, strongest guys in the league, you're going to have to try to swing a little bit harder, which opens you up for more swing and miss. And I, I love that balance in golf and how they pull that off. And I think right now baseball, with all the technology, it's just been so disruptive. We haven't gotten the point We're kind of that balance component has has really come about it's fun because this is as a this is as athletic as the game has ever been mm-hmm. um, but I also think the analytical pinnacle of the game which we're, we're rapidly getting towards isn't also the most entertaining to watch mm-hmm. and I think there's a balance in there somewhere. Uh, I love contact I love great defensive plays I love strategy. Uh, I love pitchers being forced to have a little bit more of a command component to what they do. And I love hitters having to make contact a little bit more often. I, I think all that is good for the game.
1: Last question is you had mentioned that, you know, if these guys who had these pitches in high school, I mean, this is how they were drafted, right? And this is, they had these pitches and the pitches work. And, and even probably in the minor leagues, this is what got me to where I am. A big part of this equation, just like when it comes to analytics and shifts, you have to have an acceptance of it. There has to be a willingness to say, hey, listen, I know that your dad taught you how to throw this pitch, but we are going to have to change a lot of different things. Have you noticed a difference in terms of across the board? And you're a coach, and you're usually going to be told, hey, a coach is going to tell me something to do. I'm going to do it. But have you noticed an acceptance of, of, all right, you know, I'm willing to, to invent these new pitches that you're talking about.
0: I, I th- I'll say that this year is probably going to be the year on the development side that's the tipping point where the kids coming in, and I'm about to go see our new draft class next week for the first time, where they're going to be pushing us as opposed to us pushing them. They're coming from backgrounds, whether it's perfect game, driveline, their college programs. you you name it, where they've been exposed to data, to technology, to collection devices. Uh, They're savvy on Twitter, Instagram, all the above, and they're asking us for more information as opposed to us having to convince them to use it. And to me, we've reached that saturation point, and it's now swinging the other direction where we have to be prepared and, and put in the legwork on our end to almost
1: keep up with their appetite for it all right and that uh, tone now i have to go up to the top deck of target field and and put a slinky down the stairs good luck with your slinky because you know why please film that you know oh that's why you know why brian because science science Science. (laughs) thanks so
0: much great to be here we get it attention spans just aren't what they used to be heads in social media and eyes on netflix but what do people do with their ears well for one they're listening to audio